everyone, hello. Welcome to the Analytic Activism Talk. But before we begin proceedings tonight, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, research practices and also a bit of activism within this university. May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So thank you everyone for coming out tonight to the, um, the Hogwarts-like quad of the University of Sydney for our talk on analytic activism. So our talk's supported by the Australian Political Studies Association group, uh, what's Political Organisations and Participation, and the University of Sydney Everyday Social Media Group. The format of tonight is going to be um, our guest speaker is going to speak for about half an hour. Then we're going to break into a panel discussion and I've got a series of questions for Dave and Paul Oosting, the National Director of GetUp, and Jenna Price, the uh, Fairfax journalist and co-founder of Destroy the Joint. I'll just introduce... And then, we'll, and then we'll have about half an hour or so for questions from the audience. But I'll just introduce everyone briefly. So, Dr David Karp, who yesterday got promoted to Associate Professor and got tenure. So, clearly, clearly coming to Sydney brings you luck. So he's the Director of Graduate Studies in the George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs. He's in the US, obviously. His uh, research focuses on the internet and political associations with particular attention to how digital media affects organised efforts at long-term and large-scale political change. His 2012 book, The Move-On Effect, had a really major impact on this research field. He now has his second book coming out soon called Analytic Activism and we're one of the first audiences to hear about that book. And I asked Dave what his favourite political television show was and his is Parks and Recreation. So everyone, a bit of go local. And our second on our guest panel is Jenna Price who's a columnist for the Canberra Times and Daily Life. She's a senior lecturer of journalism at the University of Technology down the road. Jenna co-founded Destroy the Joint in 2012, which is an online movement that stands for gender, in, gender equality and has 80,000 members. She's currently doing a PhD here at the University of Sydney on feminist online activism. And Jenna's favourite political TV show is Old School and hers was the original British House of Cards. Okay. And the third member of our panel is Paul Oosting, who's the National Director of GetUp, an online advocacy organisation with over one million members. Prior to joining GetUp, Paul led the successful campaign with the Wilderness Society to stop guns proposed Tasmanian pulp mill. And interestingly enough, Paul's favourite political TV show is the American contemporary House of Cards. Yeah, OK. We've got a competition going on there. And I'm the, the chair for tonight. People who don't know me, I'm Ariadne Vroman. I teach in the Department of Government and International Relations here. And, um, my, of course, my favourite political television show is often just what I'm watching that week. But uh, currently I'd say it's all about my Scandinavian utopian equality fantasies. So it remains Borgen from Denmark, but also Trapped from Norway, if you haven't watched it, because it tells you that sometimes all that earnestness can go very, very wrong. So I'm going to hand over to Dave. He's going to speak for about half an hour and then we'll come back and have a bit of a chat. Hi. 
Um, thanks so much for having me out here. Uh, it's a real thr thrill to be joining you all tonight, um, both because, wow, I get to go to Sydney and talk about a book, and also, wow, I get to go to Sydney and talk about a book while finding out that I got promoted to associate professor. What? What? Um, and also, I get to talk about this book that I've spent the past three and a half years slaving over and is now going to be a thing. Um, so the book is titled Analytic Activism. It's gonna, we're thinking it's coming out November 1st. I'm going to push for a slightly earlier deadline. Um, so if you really find this to be a fascinating talk, then in about four months you should look on Amazon and you might be able to pre-order it. Right now Amazon does not think this thing exists, but Oxford swears to me that it does exist and will exist. Um, to start out, the, the heart of this book is, a, a, as the subtitle says, is about digital listening and in particular how political strategy is changing in the digital age. Um, I, I'm an old activist myself. I got my start with the Sierra Club, which is an environmental organization in the States. Uh, they have a student-run arm called the Sierra Student Coalition. I spent my high school and college years uh, attending trainings, attending activist conferences, lobbying people, uh, and being on far too many conference calls, where we together would try to figure out how we do our work. And this has always been a puzzle to me of how do we come up with strategy and tactics, and how do we figure out whether or not they work? Um, now, how many of you consider yourselves activists? Um, how many of you feel like you have a, a clean way of determining what the best tactic is? Paul? <laughs> Paul does! <laughs> by the way, he's definitely lying. <laughs> um, so I want to start by positing to you that strategy is always messy. It always has been messy, and I'm not going to tell you that analytics and data solve that. But I, what I do want to suggest to you is that analytics and data are changing the way that we have these strategic conversations, and they're helping us to adapt to the digital communications environment in really important ways that have been pretty much overlooked in the academic literature and in the journalistic literature. And all of this comes down to a single quote that I heard just after I finished writing The Move-On Effect, and it led me to realize, oh, God, I'm going to need to write another book, aren't I? Um, and the phrase was, well, let's test it. Uh, I was at a conference called Netroots Nation. This was in 2011. Uh, and I was about to go to lunch with a friend of mine who was the director of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, which is a big Netroots organization in the States. And then she got involved in the tactical conversation. Uh, she was, her, her organization was putting together a campaign ad in Wisconsin around the Wisconsin recall election. Uh, it was with another organization, Democracy for America. And she and DFA had competing visions for who the hero of the ad should be. And they started arguing to each other about, well, here's why my vision is right. Here's why my vision is right. As an old activist, I know how this conversation goes. One of them makes an argument. The other makes another argument. Then the first argument is repeated. It's going to go back and forth for at least an hour. And it's lunchtime, and I'm hungry. So what I'm mostly doing at the time is trying to find a way to like politely get out of this so I can get lunch, because I know it, it's going to be endless. And instead, they, she presents her argument, and he presents his argument. And then she says, well, let's test it. And he says, yeah, let's test it. And that struck me as something new and important. That testing, the act of experimentation, was serving as the tiebreaker. It was the data that was going to help them to decide which vision to pursue, which tactic would be best. Now, it's not necessarily right. It's not that they were going to have a perfect scientific test that was going to give them the optimal tactic. But it was a way of at least trying things out and learning from them that hadn't previously existed. So that has led me to this 
conclusion or this perspective that informs the book that while most of what we have studied and talked about when we look at digital politics are acts of digital speech, people creating petitions online and signing petitions online, people participating in hashtagged activism, um, looking at uh, viral videos, all of these are new acts of speech that were impossible before and they're fascinating and so we spent a lot of time trying to understand them. But missing from the equation has also been the new forms of listening. The way that organizations behind the scenes gather data on what works and use that to experiment and learn and inform their tactics and strategies in new ways. So that's what this book is about. Um, this is a quote that I think sums it up better, sums the perspective up better than anything else. This is a senior analytics staffer from a Networks Organization in America who mentioned to me offhand over coffee that, you know, if, if you're not looking at your data, then you're not listening to your members. And that probably makes you kind of an asshole. That, and that's a new perspective for us to think through. Because usually when we think about analytics, what comes to mind is digital marketing. What comes to mind is Facebook massaging the, the propaganda in our news feeds that we'll spend more time on Facebook. Uh, or, you know, uh, Amazon trying to make sure that they can optimize the number of books that we sell. We're used to thinking of analytics and measurement and having this feeling of, okay, that's, that's, not, that, that, that's sort of crass. That's not earnest conversation. The alternate perspective is through analytics and data, organizations can listen to their members in new ways. And if you're not listening to what they're saying, that's certainly not very humble of you. The other part of the backdrop here, theoretically, is what I'm terming a, a media theory of movement power. This is an image from the Bloody Sunday riots, or sorry, not riots, protests, uh, in Selma, Alabama, what, 51 years ago, part of the Civil Rights Movement. And I want to start with this image because, at least in the United States, when we think about the heyday of activism, the Civil Rights Movement is immediately what comes to mind. And we usually compare the current generation of activists to this previous generation and find ourselves wanting. That often leads us to conclude that well, whatever they did then worked. So if it's not working now, it must be because we're not replicating what they did. Often this turns into conversations about online versus offline activism or clicktivism. So people will say, oh, you know, people, it's, it's too easy to participate in activism these days. It's not real. It's not powerful the way it used to be. If they would just get out in the streets, then they would make a difference. And I think that actually fails to properly pay respect to the strategic work that was being done in their era and the strategic work we need to do today. So when we think about moments like that protest, that march, the activists involved were very clearly aware of all three of these points up here. They thought clearly about their own resources. What did they as the civil rights movement had? They had their, their courage, they had their physical bodies and the ability to march. Then they thought about how could we deploy that, that resource. They also thought clearly about their opponents and their targets. In that particular case, for those of you not familiar with it, they were aware that in Selma, Alabama, there was a sheriff who could not stand the notion of African Americans walking through his city in protest of their rights. And that this sheriff, if they marched, would overreact and turn the hoses and the dogs on them. That's a critical component of that protest. If the sheriff doesn't overreact, then at the end of that Sunday, they're left with tired legs, but not much else, not much social change. 
So they thought about what they had. They thought about their opponent. They also thought about the media system. In particular, in the 1960s, we were at the heyday of the industrial broadcast era. We had three television stations in America, and all of them were going to have cameras there. And those activists realized, if we march and he overreacts, that will be caught on film and beamed into every household in America. So they marched, and he overreacted, and every household in America witnessed that, that act. And we know in the recorded history, this led particularly white people in the American North to be astonished by what they were seeing and to take action. The power of that march was not solely that they were taking offline action. It was this creative thinking about what are the affordances of our current media system and how can we leverage power in it? My question for you today is if they were to have that same march in 2016 and NBC and ABC and CBS showed up, three big television stations, does it really have the same impact? I would say no. That doesn't mean that we can't have an impact in the digital media environment and social sharing. We can have impacts. In fact, if we look in America at the Ferguson protests just a year ago, what we were seeing there were these images spreading virally through social media. And activists, like activists from 50 years earlier, thinking hard about the affordances of that media environment and how they could use them to leverage their messages beyond their own echo chamber to reach the national public. So rather than just trying to mimic the tactics of 50 years ago that were designed for a media environment that no longer exists, we instead need to understand the current media environment and how we can leverage power in it. Here's an example of what we can do now that we can no longer do. Uh, this is a group called New Era Colorado. It's a small activist group in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, a couple years ago now, they ran a campaign. Uh, the, the city of Boulder, which is a very liberal city, uh, had passed an ordinance saying that they were, as a city, were going to take control of local power generation. The local power company didn't like this because it meant that they were going to lose money. And so the power company got a referendum on the ballot trying to overturn the city council decision. And these scrappy young activists decided that they were going to fight back against the power company. One of their tactics was producing a high-quality video. It was about, I think, an eight-minute video that they produced and put online on their Indiegogo page to help fundraise. They wanted to raise about $70,000. Um, and they figured, we're going to create this, and people will watch it, and they'll be inspired. As an activist trained in the 90s, this seems like a terrible waste of resources to me. Because who's going to see your video, this video that you're putting all this energy and creativity and money into creating? People who are already such strong supporters that they've already gone to your Indiegogo page to give money to you. That's a pretty small audience and they're already planning on giving to you. Why are you wasting your resources that way? But this is a different era. So they created this video and they alerted their supporters. One of their supporters was a guy named Adam Mordecai who works at a company called Upworthy. And Adam thought, this is a really high-quality video. It tells a great story. I'm going to see if I can craft a headline for social media that gets people to click on it, because I'll bet if they click on it, they're going to love it, and then they're going to share it, and it'll spread further. And Adam came up with the headline, a bunch of young geniuses just made a corrupt corporation freak out big time. Time for round two. It attracted millions of views. It raised $200,000 for them, far higher than their goal. It attracted national media attention. They won their campaign, which may or may not been, have been because of the viral attention. Boulder's a liberal town. They might have won anyway. But it became a national story that has informed strategy in these types of fights 
around the nation now. And all of that is because they developed a tactic that would have made no sense 20 or 30 years ago, but makes perfect sense for the social sharing environment that we have today. And it makes sense, at least partially, because of analytics and listening. Upworthy is built on analytics. In particular, in particular the logic of, of Upworthy is that people won't share content with a terrible headline that they never click on to begin with. They won't share content that has a great headline that they'll click on, but then think, oh my god, that was awful. I feel embarrassed that I read it. But if you come up with the right headline after you have found content that is shareworthy, then that can lead to social sharing that starts with your echo chamber of supporters, but then moves to their social networks and their social networks and social networks, their social networks. Upworthy at its peak was reaching 80 million people throughout the United States. There's still around 20 million now after Facebook changed its algorithms a bit to sort of cut down on them. Basically, Facebook decided that they wanted some of, a lot of that traffic, so they changed a few things and, and followed them. Um, but they are, I, I talk about them in chapter four of the book because they're evidence of the ways that the social sharing environment has changed the, the work of per political persuasion that we can do in this day and age. Another example of this, this is from change.org. It's a, my favorite small change.org story. How many of you are familiar with change.org? I think a few in the room are probably staffers as well. If so, hello. Um, so a high school group, uh, a high school drama club in Connecticut, Trumbull, Connecticut, where my wife happens to be from, which is why I heard of the story. Um, they were going to put on the musical Rent. And uh, they decided that in the spring. And then in the fall, they got a new principal. And the principal thought that Rent was far too risque because it's the cutting edge of like 25 years ago. So he told them, you can't do that. And they were outraged, so they started a petition, a physical petition in their high school. And all their fellow students signed it saying, that's ridiculous. And the principal, when he receives these petitions, says, ah, oh, that's cute. Principals are not in the business of listening when the high school students say, I think you're unjust, principal. But they also started a change.org petition. And change.org looks for petitions that tell story, human stories of fights against injustice and helps to raise them up. And one of the things that it does very well is it finds these stories and helps connect them with media outlets that would care. So the petition on change.org was brought to the attention of the arts beat writer at the New York Times. I thought, yeah, that's worth a blog post. And then a bunch of other papers talked about it as well. And all of a sudden this principal, instead of fighting with his high school students, was becoming the national laughingstock in the New York, New York Times. I don't know, I've been able to do interviews to find out how many minutes it took him to change his position, but it was certainly less than a day and I would imagine less than an hour. That's, that's powerful leverage, which couldn't have been done in the previous media environment and is the promise of our current media environment. So when I talk about digital activism, I've, I'm now moving to defining it and then I wanna talk to you about its limitations, hopefully within 30 minutes. Um, I will get there, I promise. Um, so when I talk about analytic activism, I'm not talking about all digital activism. This is, I, I would, this is circumscribed to situations in which we have these three characteristics. First, it is focused on using digital tools for listening in order to develop insights into public opinion amongst an issue public. So you can only have analytic activism within an organization or within a network of organizations that has a core that can listen and learn. A lot of the viral movements that we pay attention to online don't have that core that can experiment, that can listen, that can learn. It focuses in particular on what I call in the book internal analytics as opposed to external analytics. 
external analytics are the social listing that you would do if you were to say take a lot of data from Twitter, usually through say some third party app that will tell you here's what's trending on Twitter. And that can be a viewpoint on what people in Australia or in America are talking about. That's one type of insight that activists can learn from. A different type of insight comes when an organization like MoveOn or GetUp is looking at how their members are responding to their messages. So that listening internally, the, the nice thing about that internal listening is since it's not through a third-party app, you have much more control and you can decide what are the things we really need to measure and learn from. So you can develop the right metrics as opposed to just taking whatever Facebook or Twitter will offer to you. And you can use that to run experiments. You can use that to make sure you're listening for the right things. But that requires an organization that can house it and decide strategically what are we, what are we trying to learn here. Strategic choice is still important in all of this. Critically, it embraces a culture of testing that is then guiding the organizational learning workflow and practices. Importantly here, there are a lot of organizations, particularly older organizations, that have learned they ought to do something with analytics. And so they're like, they've told their intern, take a look at Google Analytics every week. That's not analytic activism. Uh, analytic activism only takes on that character when analytics become a strategic object that inform your decisions. So if it's the lowest level staffer who's looking at the analytics, but it's not getting reported up, then it's never being used to inform that question, well, let's test it. But when an organization is saying, okay, what's our strategy? How do we know that it's working? And what can we try in order to find out what would work better? That's when they're using digital listening in order to actually adapt to the digital environment in new ways. And the last point is that all of this means that it requires scale for effectiveness. This, I think, is particularly interesting when we look cross-nationally. So one of the organizations that uh, uh, is what I would call Netroots is called Action Station. It's in New Zealand. And they have a lot of the characteristics of a get-up or a move-on, but they're also a much smaller country. And as you get smaller and smaller, it becomes difficult to actually get statistically significant results on your daily tests. So if you're in a small country or if you're in a small issue area, then you actually can't do this type of analytic activism that's practiced by GetUp or by a MoveOn, which means that analytic activism rewards scale, it rewards the multi-issue generalists that I talked about in my first book as being uh, it, something that comes up in this digital age. The multi-issue generalists, by developing their large member lists, can then listen and learn more effectively and therefore innovate and try new things better than the smaller organizations out there. Now that's not to say, again, not all digital activism is, is analytic activism. I'm not suggesting that you have to be a large organization in order to leverage the internet. But I am saying that if you want to leverage the internet for digital listening and learning, the larger you are, the better you can do that. that there's re increasing returns to scale here. When I talk about listening, there's two broad types of it. Um, this, by the way, is a whole chapter of the book that I'm going to do in like two slides. Um, there's tactical optimization that I think is pretty well known, particularly from the Obama campaign. We've heard stories, I imagine they have crossed to the world, uh, about the Obama campaign running A-B tests to figure out what is just the right headline to generate fundraising, uh, to generate revenue, or to get people to turn out. And that tactical optimization is practiced by all these organizations as well. It's valuable. But it's quite limited. It gives you better tactics. It doesn't change your strategy. It doesn't change the course of actions that you're going to take. And it's primarily, we primarily see this in elections because in elections, 
We have a, a set end date, and we have a very clear outcome that you're aiming for. Your end date, actually, when I planned this trip, wasn't already set, but now you know it's in, what is it, 44 days. You're going to have an election, and you will know afterwards who won and who lost, and what tactics were effective in getting them there. Let's say that you're working on climate issues, though. We don't have a set end date. We don't have clear metrics for knowing whether or not we're winning or losing. So in advocacy campaigning, analytics inform a much wider set of practices, what I call passive democratic feedback. That's where you're using the same set of practices, A-B testing, surveys of your members, all these sort of digital signals, in order to not just find out what's the narrow language that helps to optimize our tactic, but instead gain information on what our strategic direction ought to be. What issues do our members want us to work on today? Where is their passion where we can create some leverage that we didn't otherwise know about within our staff team? So passive democratic feedback involves a much wider range of learning that you don't find if you're looking at analytics strictly in elections, because elections are in fact such a narrow, conceptually simple subset of activism. So when I talk about the culture of testing, this is an example from 38 Degrees, a sister organization of, of get-ups and move-ons in the UK. Uh, I stopped by their office a few years ago and notice this says testing whiteboard. I'm a terrible photographer and I took the photograph. So you can't really see it. But they had, they had at the time two whiteboards in their office. And one of them was this testing whiteboard and I asked their staff about it. And they said, well yeah, every week we brainstorm a question that we can test. And when I was visiting, the question was, how do we increase active membership by 30%? So they asked the question, they brainstormed some possibilities, and then they spent a week trying things. At the end of the week they had a debrief they talked about what they learned. And the next week, they came up with another question. That is what I mean by a culture of testing. Because again, all, for all of us activists in the room, usually the way that we practice our tactics is we do what we've always done, or we do what our boss says we have to do, or we do what our funders have expected. There's very little room for innovation and listening and learning, testing out new things. It's hard to do it. So it's not that when they ask this question and do measurement that they're necessarily arriving at the right scientific perfect answer, but it's that the culture of testing and listening through analytics is allowing these organizations to create new pathways for learning tactics and, and practicing new things. Those learning pathways don't exist if you haven't developed that capacity for testing and listening and trying out new things. I think it's critical in understanding how we adapt to the digital age, since again, the media environment is changing so fast. So now let me talk a bit about the limitations and then I'll close because I'm sure I'll be over time at that point. Um, there's three limitations I want to talk about. The first, uh, which I already sort of hinted at, is what I call the analytics floor. This is the threshold at which your list is too small to effectively practice internal analytics. Uh, a Greenpeace Mobilization Lab has done some estimation on this. I'm not sure it's perfect. But they estimate you probably need about 500,000 people on your list in order to run everyday tests. Now, if you're a get-up, that's fine. If you're a move-on, that's fine. If you're a local community group that wants to use the internet for activism, you can't do it. You're too small. This has led for organizations that are between the, the move-on size or the get-up size and the local community group to pursue uh, what the, the term of art for it is growthiness, to engage in tactics that help them to grow their member list so that they can then start engaging in these analytics practices. And growthiness carries its own threat because the growthiest petitions are not always the most important issues to work on. 
So growthiness both has some promise to it, but also some underlying concerns and threats to it. And I talk about that a bunch in the book. I can tell stories about it in Q&A if you'd like, but I don't want to go too long because we'll go too long. Um, so the analytics floor is one of the, the, the boundary conditions here. You need to be of a certain scale in order to practice these things and gather the value of digital listening. The second li limitation is what I would call the analytics frontier. Some things are easier to measure than others. Um, here's a, a phrase from a, a behavioral economist named Dan Ariely, uh, that you are what you measure. I hear this a lot when I talk with analytic activists. And the corollary to that is that you probably aren't what you have trouble measuring. The challenge here is we can measure fundraising outcomes. We can measure list growth. We can measure petition signatures. It gets harder when we move from those easy mobilization outcomes to campaigning outcomes. Are we affecting decision makers? Are we changing the media agenda? That stuff is measurable, but it's not as easily measurable, which makes it harder for our organizations to base our decisions around them. Harder still are what I would call organizing metrics. In order to develop power as social movements, we need to develop shared identity. We need to develop skills amongst activists. All of that is real difficult to measure. Uh, my colleague and friend Hari Han, who I know has also visited uh, Australia, and I think many of you have probably gotten to meet, uh, she's uh, a couple books that came out recently, but one of them, Groundbreakers, is a study of the 2012 Obama campaign. And there's great text in Groundbreakers where she's interviewing staffers who are facing this cultural divide between the focus on analytics and the focus on community organizing. Because what they're finding is that while the Obama campaign wanted to do relational conversations with all of their supporters, relational conversations take a lot of time, and they're not time spent on the phones. So they were measuring what was easy to measure, which was time spent on the phones. And they wanted to optimize for that, but they also would really like to develop a movement. And their organizers talk about this constant cross-pressure between the two. That cross-pressure is there because we don't yet have the tools to measure the outcomes of organizing relational conversations. We don't have them yet, though. So some of the work that I talk about in the book is going on amongst organizations like GetUp and some of us, which is also started by an Aussie, actually. Um, these are digital activist organizations that are developing new metrics so that they can make sure they're trying to optimize for the right things. Um, so the frontier is a frontier because we're still expanding into it. It's not that analytic activism can only be used for fundraising and petitions, but those are the easily available metrics, and the work amongst the leading practitioners is to develop newer ones and better ones. The last limitation I want to talk about is, I think, conceptually more of a worry for us. Um, broadly, it's what I would call listening without conversation. Um, can I get a show of hands, because this is going to be a cross-cultural thing. How many of you are familiar with Cesar Chavez? Okay, many of you. Um, Cesar Chavez is uh, amongst the best-known organizers in America. Uh, he organized the grape and lettuce boycotts in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, has been a real hero to many of us. Um, and back when I was an, an activist trainer, back when I was in the Sierra Club, we always would lean off, lead off our trainings with this quote by Cesar Chavez, that I only know one way to organize, and that's to talk to one person, and then another person, and then another person. That's organizing through conversation. It's relational organizing, the type of stuff that people like Marshall Gantz talk about. And there's a divide between that relational organizing and the type of listening that we do through analytics. Because analytics allows us to listen 
without engaging in the shared work of conversation. Mika Sifri uh, wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago now called The Big Disconnect, where he raises this concern. He talks about audience atomization. What he says is that he started to wonder if the bigger trend in digital activism uh, is uh, the combination of let's watch it by ourselves and let's respond to it by ourselves. He uses the Coney 2012 uh, issue as an example. That all of us, 100 million people watched this video on their own. They shared it with their networks, but they shared it sitting alone. Some of them took a, another action, but it was usually, again, sitting alone. Which meant that a lot of the, what I would call, beneficial inefficiencies that come from the shared work, the shared labor of getting on conference calls, of going to a meeting together, and of developing that shared identity, that this is the work that we do together. Shared identity that also leads to shared skills and shared commitment. That was something in Cesar Chavez's time that we had to do because it was the only way that we could organize. The benefit of analytic activism is that we can now listen where we couldn't before. And as that analytic staffer said, if you have the opportunity to listen, listen and you're just choosing not to, you might be kind of an asshole. But the counter to that is for the members of these organizations, while the staff are able to hear all of this conversation and use that to make decisions, the members don't realize that they're engaging in a conversation. So it's incumbent upon those organizations to find other ways to build that identity amongst their membership, to help the members feel like, yes, this is something that I'm participating in. I'm aware that I'm contributing to it. So they develop that identity and they develop those skills and the organizations and our movements can develop the power and the capacity that they need to create the changes that they want to see in the world. That's something that happened naturally because it was the only game in town in the older media environment. Today we can listen in new ways, but we also need to find ways to still craft and support that conversation. So a couple closing themes, I'm gonna skip this slide. Um, one is that digital media don't just change how activists speak. It's not just hashtag movements and the ability to create change through our voices online when before we could only make our voices heard in the streets. We also need to consider these acts of digital listening and the way that they inform strategy and learning and allow organizations to develop their tactics in new ways. The media environment is going to continue to change. And if I'm right about the media theory of movement power, that some of the power of our tactics are based in the affordances of the media environment, then the only way social movement activists are going to be able to keep pace with this fast-changing media environment is if they have new tools for experimenting and listening and learning. Analytic activism provides those tools. Second, as I just noted, the media environment has changed and therefore I would suggest to you that activist tactics have to change as well. We need to get away from comparing online to offline activism and treating offline activism as though it is a thing that works, whereas online activism we don't know yet. Because all tactics fail in some circumstances and don't fail in others. The work of strategy comes from figuring out what are our resources, who are our opponents, what are their resources, what are the vulnerabilities of our tactics, and how can we create echoes and create more power through the media environment. Strategy is still the same as it's always been. It is still messy and hard. But the way that we engage in strategy needs to include a rethinking of what the media environment today allows us to do. Third, using analytics, analytics can basically be used in two big ways. The organizations that I've been studying are using it quite well in order to help them make better decisions. 
But strategy is still messy and hard. And I think there are a lot of organizations that are now looking to digital listening in the hopes that it will let them not make decisions at all. So they can automate their decisions and just let the analytics guide them. Those organizations end up following growthiness and taking on the actions that are most popular uh, and most clickable as opposed to most important, important and most powerful. So it's incumbent upon organizations, and I talk about this in the last two chapters of the book, to think hard about what is their theory of change, what is their theory of movement power, and then use analytics in order to test the right things. If instead they're just saying, yeah, let's go with whatever headline works, that must be the winner, then they're never going to develop the power that they want and need. Last, and I haven't talked about this as much in the talk, but it's in the book, is to always be blending your signals. Because people's clicks are one signal of what they value and what they prefer. But you get other signals when you call them up on the phone and talk with them. Still other signals when you ask their, your staff, your talented staff, what their creative ideas for leveraging this moment in politics are. Still other things when you uh, survey your members and ask them, what do you like about what we're doing these days and what don't you like? Sometimes the thing they click on is also the thing that they'll say, I hate that you're doing this thing. It's the difference between what we call uh, um, revealed preferences and meta preferences in the literature. So organizations using analytic activism need to make sure, uh, this is similar to that first point of, you know, make sure that you're not just uh, automating all your decisions. They need to not treat analytics as though it is the answer to all of their problems. But instead, they need to engage in the messy, tough, strategic and tactical arguments and then come up with a way to test it so that they can learn and adapt. Thanks.